Mailbag. Nothing personal word of the day. Mailbag episode. It's the end of April, the last day of the month of April. We are a third done with 2021. Mailbag is when you go on Apple Podcasts, find the Nothing Personal page, rate five stars, write a review. In the review, ask a question, and I will try to answer that question on these end of month mailbag bonus episodes. Sometimes I get questions on Twitter at David P. Sampson, hit follow. And I try to use those for the So You Want to Talk to Sampson segments during a regular show, but sometimes they're so good that I save them for the mailbag. And we have so much to do today. You guys come up with some amazing questions. Thank you very much. Let's just start. Opening day starters. That's not a question. If the opposing team's number one is much better than your number one, why start your number one? Why not your number four versus their number one? Then your number one versus their number two, two v three, three v four. You get it. Tank the first game, but have better matchups for the rest of the series. The same would apply to playoff rotations. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. You must have been in my ears so many times. We must have been in the same universe. When I first got into baseball, the year was 1999. We're entering the 2000 season. We had Javier Vasquez as our number one starter. And then we had the desire for four rain delays with all respect to Mike Thurman and Jeremy Powell, et cetera. And Dustin Hermanson, who was actually our opening day starter. But that was pretty much the way our rotation worked. And I would say to the GM, who was Jim Beatty at the time, why would we start our number one against someone else's number one? Why not save them? Because there was all this talk during spring training. When are we going to announce our opening day starter? Everyone wants to know that. It's a big deal. Who's your opening day starter? He's got a record six straight opening day starts. He's got the most opening day starts in franchise history. He has a record of seven and two on opening day. It was my opinion that opening day mattered more than the rest of the season. So I wanted to make sure that we had the best chance of possible to win opening day. It was pointed out to me by Jim Beatty and then reiterated by further later GMs like Larry Beinfest and Mike Hill and Dan Jennings, that every single game out of 162 means the same thing. We do not put our rotation together according to opponent. We do not put our rotation together according to home versus road, night versus day. We put our rotation together from the best we have to the worst we have. You want to get the starters who are the best, the most starts you can in a year, which is why you start them on the earliest possible day of the regular season. So they can start even with off days. If you want to pitch them on regular rest and go with a four-man rotation because of early season off days, teams who do that, by the way, are teams that don't have rotation depth and they want to get their opening day starter again, a start as quickly as possible. But the reality is, the theory that you have, that if you're facing Garrett Cole and you're the New York Yankees, why would you ever pitch Shane Bieber if you're the Cleveland Indians? He's your ace. And the answer is because Shane Bieber gives your team the best chance to win every single time he pitches, regardless of who's pitching for the other side. Garrett Cole gives your team the best chance to win every time he pitches, regardless of who's pitching on the other side, even if it is Shane Bieber. 
back in 2003, we had a game with Randy Johnson pitching against us, and it was Dontrell Willis's turn. And I remember saying to Larry Beinfest, let's not waste Dontrell against Randy Johnson. And he said to me, stop it, David. Stop it. You're talking like a fan. And he reiterated what I'm reiterating to you and answering your question very, very simply. The reason why you don't tank the first game to have better matchups the rest of the series is you never know on any given day which pitcher is going to shove it right up your keister. You don't know whether or not your offense could maybe handle the other team's ace because those aces give up runs even if your name is Jacob deGrom. Not a lot of runs, but sometimes runs. And if you went under the attitude, psychologically speaking, it is such a big deal in baseball, in every sport handling the clubhouse, handling the personalities. If you choose to not pitch your best pitcher because the other team's best pitcher is pitching, what is the signal that you are giving to your best pitcher and to your team? That you're not good enough, that we're not good enough, that he's not good enough. That is not how to play baseball. By the way, a little side note for those historians in the room. Do you know what happened when Dontrell Willis pitched against Randy Johnson? You got it. Marlins won three to one. You just never know. But the reason I wanted to start the show with this question is that I asked myself that all the time when I got into the game. And even after all these years, I think to myself, God, I don't want to waste this guy. And then I hear the voice of Jim or Larry or Mike or DJ. And then I communicate to you. Hey, David. I love listening to Nothing Personal. Thank you. And I think your segments on Libertad are fascinating. Thank you. Would baseball benefit from restructuring its championship structure. Keep the World Series, but also hand out a trophy for the team with the most wins, like the Premiership and EPL, as well as a midseason tournament, including qualifying minor league teams, like the FA Cup. A lot of time spent on this exact subject. There was a split season about 40 years ago in Major League Baseball, when the winner of the first half played the winner of the second half, both winners made the playoffs. It was split that way because of a strike back in the early 80s. The reason why you've never gotten 23 owners to agree to any sort of first half, second half, the reason why we have never agreed, we, they, not we, that's a dollar coca, the reason why they have never agreed to hand out any sort of trophy for wins, or any sort of split season, or any sort of mid-season anything, is that larger revenue teams under all scenarios want as many games as possible during the course of a regular season in order to give them enough runway in case they start off not playing well. Remember the year the Washington Nationals won the World Series 2019? I want to say they started off 15 and 25 or 10 and 20, or they were 10 games below 500. And they started off that same way in 2020 when they were defending their World Series championship. But in 2020, there were only 60 games. They did not have time to recover from that bad stretch. Even good teams have bad stretches. Look at the Yankees this year. They've won a couple in a row. Still not a great start to the season. But over the course of 162, the cream tends to rise to the top. So when baseball gets together, there's 30 owners in a room. Remember, you need 23 owners to approve anything. You will never get a block of owners to agree to give any extra opportunity to small market 
low revenue teams. The reason, again, is you don't know how bad it is inside an owner's meeting until you sit next to an owner of a large revenue team and you are a revenue sharing recipient and you look over to your left and you thank the owner for all the money he's giving you so you can kick his ass on the field. They don't like that. So any change to the competitive structure, to divisional structure, to the playoff structure is always done with an eye toward, can you get the 23 votes? The reason why it works for soccer is quite self-explanatory. It's a completely different economic model, completely different in how the league is run, how the teams are run. You will not find a North American sport, even one with salary cap like the NFL, NFL, NBA, even one where you've got a huge amount of revenue sharing like NFL with all the broadcast revenue. You will never find a league that will agree to a first half, second half because you simply don't have the votes. Appreciate the question. Hey, David. Hey there. Curious. What do you think of this story? And then there's a whole story. It's about the MLB and they set those records in streaming. Did you read about that? I think we talked about that on a previous Nothing Personal Coco, but it could have been on a radio show or other show I did. MLB set a bunch of records in streaming and they had the most streamed days to start a season like eight records in 10 days or 15 records in 20 days and millions of people are streaming and listening. And I think I commented that, uh, well, of course they're streaming because people are consuming baseball in all sorts of different ways. But here's your question. Offense is down across the board, but people seem to be loving baseball again. Meanwhile, the Red Sox seem to be winning using old school baseball. Will we see copycats? I love the copycat question. It is the most embarrassing question you could ever ask of any executive in Major League Baseball. Because if you gave them truth serum, every single executive, whether you're Theo or Andrew Friedman or Michael Hill, it doesn't matter who you are or who you work for or what your payroll is, every single executive pays attention to what every other executive is doing, how they run their minor league system, how they analyze players, how many people are in their analytics department, what they're doing with their lineup, what they're doing in terms of free agency and trades. Everybody's keeping track of everyone, how they use the defensive shift. Why? Not because of Moneyball the movie, though Moneyball is the greatest example of copycat that ever existed in the history of sport, and that is not hyperbole. Oakland did not invent Moneyball. Oakland simply used it in a way that many other teams were not. We all were using analytics back in the 2000s, but not all teams use them with the same depth or breadth or budgetary allocation. I was very late to the party of analytics because I believed in eyes. I believed in gut because that's how I've done everything my whole life is with my eyes and my gut. We had a couple of people in analytics and I did not think we were at a competitive disadvantage. As the years passed and I saw that we were missing out on several opportunities that I could see in front of me during the course of a game where we were being outmanaged, outcoached and outprepared, I agreed to an increased budget allocation only after I was proven it had been proven to me 
that beefing up that part of the budget would lead to the possibility of more wins. But then I realized that if I copy what someone else is doing and someone copies what I'm doing, and then we're all doing the same thing, then what's the inherent advantage of doing that thing to begin with? Because the inherent advantage of being different is the is the difference between what you're doing and what the other person's doing. And if that difference is a positive, you win more games. If that difference is a negative, you lose more games. If that difference is negligible, in theory, you go to the next level of what are the differentiating factors. Maybe you have better scouts, maybe you have better baseball people, maybe you have better stadium, maybe you have better grass, maybe you have better grounds crew. You go down the entire list looking for ways where you can get a competitive advantage. Why do you think the Astros stole signs and hit garbage cans? because that gave them an incremental advantage over their opponent. If I had heard Astros using garbage cans, we would have started to use garbage cans. I wouldn't have told on them. I just would have started doing that. Of course you see copycats, except what exactly are you talking about? What's being copied with quote unquote old school baseball? Are you talking about pitching and defense? Have you paid attention to the Milwaukee Brewers recently? They're winning with pitching and defense. The Dodgers, Tremendous pitching, good offense. Yankees, not enough pitching, no World Series. The basic principle of baseball has not changed. As much fun as the home run is and launch angle, the reality is that pitching and defense wins rings. And that has been copied for years. So when you ask me, will I see copycats? The answer is yes. There's always copycats in every part of baseball. I appreciate that question. Listen to a podcast about MLB's move to Denver and agreed that they are now on a slippery slope. And this was actually written before the Rockies GM, quote unquote, resigned the other day. I just started listening, so maybe you've touched on this already. But will MLB and other major sports leagues take a stand on transgender rights and allow participation based on gender identity? Lots of states are debating this now, and these leagues may be in a damned if they do and damned if they don't situation. I have no particular opinion on the matter, but was curious about yours. Well, Coke and I had quite a discussion on this. I needed to include this in the show. He completely agreed. This is a very interesting topic that has not hit the major leagues yet, but it is going to. But I want to take it down to the high school level take it down to the Olympic level. And I want to start this conversation by telling you the rights of transgender people is an evolving subject. For whatever reason that is unbeknownst to me, and I'm actually about to review a movie, maybe on next week's Nothing Personal, called Transhood on HBO Max, which is about trans children in the Midwest. And watching that movie made me realize that there is so much work to be done because the level of intolerance that people have towards transgender, the violence that is shown toward transgender people comes from fear. People claim it's religion, but they're full of it. There's nothing I can't stand less than people using their religion as some sort of sword for other people not to be able to do what they feel they want, what they feel is right for them. Who are you to say that a man's a man, a woman's a woman, and never the two shall meet. It's not for me to say. But now let's talk about sports. What is your view 
of a high school boy saying that he is transgender and transitioning to becoming a woman and all of a sudden wants to play women's sports. Let's start with women's track and field. You know, on nothing personal, we're going to get right to it. And it may be hard to hear, but this is a fact. There is a reason, whatever the reason is, genetics, muscle mass, body type, whatever the case is, I think we'd all agree the reason why there's men's track and field and women's track and field is that it is clear that in many cases, and I'm not talking about Billie Jean King playing tennis with Bobby Riggs, I'm talking about on a track and a field doing a 100-yard dash. We have not yet seen a woman run a 100-yard dash fast enough to hold the world record for both men and women. So in high school, if you have a man who wants to run track and field, but be on the women's team, it is hard for me to argue that that should be allowed. And the reason why is that puts every other female at a competitive disadvantage. This is not the classroom. This is not a restaurant. This is not a bathroom. This is not about tolerance of transgender. So please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. This is about competitive integrity. I have no problem with a woman being a place kicker or a linebacker or any player on a football team. I have no problem with any woman being on a baseball team. I have no problem with any transgender man being on a woman's softball team. The issue comes when I'm talking about individual sports or sports where a single person can make an impact on a game in a way that is unbalanced. Track and field is a clear example of that. What about golf? If your daughter is working to get a scholarship at college, tries out for the high school team, and it's based on who can shoot the lowest score, that's who's going to make the team, and that's who has an opportunity to get a scholarship. And then a boy tries out for the team who can outdrive the girls by 70 yards, but can play from the girls' tees because it's women's golf and she identifies as a she, even though she's a he with the strength, that puts competitive disadvantage on the other girls on the team and the other girls on the other teams. Does this make me not enlightened? No. Does this make me intolerant? Absolutely not. Make sure you understand the differentiating factors that I am discussing. Major League Baseball would have no problem with a woman trying out and making the team. With the WNBA, and I, this is for an example only, how would you feel about Steph Curry transitioning to be a woman, but not having gone through any sort of transition other than an identity transformation, identifying as a woman, and Steph Curry is now in the WNBA? How is that for competitiveness? Soccer's the same. I differentiate football. I differentiate baseball. But soccer, basketball, I think it's a very tough subject. And tough subjects require people to have thoughtful reasoning and rules must apply. There has to be a way to allow for the peaceful transition and the absence of hate-based crime 
We have to have a way of dealing with people who don't believe they are what you think they are and want to be who they believe they are, and that is their right. I was thinking about Caitlyn Jenner, who's now running for governor in California. Caitlyn Jenner used to be Bruce Jenner, who won an Olympic medal. I don't remember which Olympics. I want to say it was 1976, but I could be wrong. I believe Bruce Jenner won the decathlon. He was on the Wheaties, cover of Wheaties. It was a whole thing. How would the women's Olympic team have dealt with an athlete like Bruce Jenner, who became Caitlyn Jenner, playing on the United States women's Olympic team? Would that have been fair or would it not have been fair? Do you remember? And this is not just about sex. It's about competition. Tell me the name, Coca. What's in my head right now? Stay with me. Oscar. Oscar Pistorius. Do you remember the lawsuits that Oscar Pistorius went through? He was a double amputee. Forget the fact that he's in prison now. I'm talking about the double amputee. And he wanted to compete in track and field against able-bodied athletes. He did not want to be in the Special Olympics. He felt with his blades that he could compete and he was doing more than just competing. And there were other athletes saying this is not fair. He is not needing to use his legs. He's got blades. Went all the way up. Courts heard it. What's your view on whether or not that is a level playing field? Because that was the case. I appreciate that you take the time to ask about transgender and athletics and what participation should be like. I encourage you when you're thinking about your position to just give thought to differentiating factors. Okay. David, I love the Bobby Bonilla deal from his side as a player and that he's still getting paid every year. But my question is, as a team, is it good or bad? Can his contract be depreciated? I've been going back and forth and don't know. I'm hoping you can elaborate on this. Thanks. Love the show, Nothing Personal, and also the local hour with Levitard. Well, thank you. I appreciate you asking. So let's talk about Bobby Bonilla. And I want to reiterate what may have been said on a previous show, but it's an important enough concept because what you read about now in baseball with all these big contracts being signed is the concept of deferral. Deferral is a concept where you pay someone less than what you would normally pay for services rendered at a particular time and then pay them more than you would usually pay for services rendered at another particular time. If I decided to pay Coca $5 to produce this show, and I said, Coca, I'll pay you $3 now, and then a year from now, I'll give you $2. So I'm getting a $2 break today because I should pay him five. I'm only paying him three. I'm up $2. Coca should be getting five. He only gets three. He's down $2. A year from now, Coca gets $2 on a particular April 30th day, and he hasn't produced a show. That means Coca's up $2 on April 30th. I've got to pay him $2 next April 30th, and he has not rendered one service to me on April 30th. That means I'm down $2. Who wins? The question is, what did I do with those $2 today? Because I didn't pay Coca. I just paid him three out of five. What did I do with the $2? Did I put him in my mattress? And when I woke up a year from now, I looked under the mattress, and it was $2. What happens if I put them in water? I surrounded them with an avocado pit. I put them in a jar. I put them on the windowsill. 
and I closed my eyes. I covered it up and I uncovered it, opened my eyes a year from now and boom, we had ourselves a money tree. And that $2 was now $3. Uh-oh, I only have to give Coca $2 and I have an extra dollar. That means I win. Why? Because he produced a show for me last year for $5. I gave him three, saved two, turned the two into three, only had to give him two out of those three. But if I didn't get to save the two this year and not pay Coca, I wouldn't have been able to plant my avocado pit. And if I hadn't planted my avocado pit, I wouldn't have had the extra dollar that I have next April, even after giving Coca $2. What's the moral of the story? The moral of the story is it depends how you invest the money that you are deferring. Think about this. If you're the New York Mets and you have a relationship with the dead Bernie Madoff and Bernie Madoff walks into your office and says, guess what? My name is Bernie. I am the king avocado pit grower. You give me $2 today and I promise I'll grow a plant that will make you so happy because when you come Harvest, guess what? It's going to be $6. You're turning two into six. Don't give the $2 to your player. Keep it. Pay him $3 next year. Because guess what? You'll pay him three. I'm growing six in my avocado pit. You're going to get three extra dollars. Now, don't worry about the fact that that's not true and that I have to get money from someone else to give you the $6. You just know that I'm going to give you the $6. Or take away the Ponzi scheme. Let's say that you're the owner of a company like Walmart, or you are the owner of a cattle company, or you're an investment advisor or a banker, and you say to yourself, I know how to invest money, and I don't care about a recession. I don't care about a boom or a bust or a bull or a bear. I know that if I put my money to work in the market, I'm going to invest in cryptocurrency, Bitcoin. My name's Trevor Lawrence, and I know exactly what I'm doing. Pay me in Bitcoin. I know very well that my investments will yield a higher interest rate than what I need to offer a player in order to defer compensation. Now, some players don't require interest. Bobby Bonilla did. The Mets paid him, let's say, 3% interest on his money to defer it all these years. And Mets said, I don't care. I'm making 10% from Bernie. There are other players, let's say a Chris Davis, who signed a seven-year, $161 million deal, that horrific deal with the Baltimore Orioles. That's the guy who strikes out all the time and hits below 200. You know him. The Orioles deferred $42 million of it. So they're going to pay him $3.5 million per year from 2023 to 2032 and another $1.4 million a year from 2033 to 2037. Chris Davis will get $1.4 million the year he turns 51. Do you know what that's called? It's called a forced savings plan. That's it. It's like buying whole life insurance. It's basically for savings. If you can do better with your investments legally, do it. Do not defer money. Take the money now. Grow your own avocado pit. If you are someone who believes that you will buy 10 cars, four houses, and support 34 people, and you think that your days of being rich will never end, take the whole life insurance plan, take the deferred money, and you will be happy to get the $1.4 million through age 51. It's all about discipline. Do you know we had players, D Gordon's a great example of that when we signed him to his big contract. We signed him to a big contract and he had us pay into two accounts each of his 
payment weeks. He paid into an operating account that he would live his life, but he paid the majority. We paid the majority of his salary into an investment account that he did not see, touch, have the right to use. He wanted the forced savings plan, but he wanted to control the money. Smart move. So when it comes to deferral, the bottom line is there is no way to answer whether it's a good deal or a bad deal for a team. It matters whether or not you can properly invest the money and if what you say is going to happen actually does happen. And who can guarantee that? In terms of depreciation of the contracts, contracts are depreciated over the first years that you own a team actually is how depreciation wins, wins in sports. When you acquire assets in an asset transaction, you can depreciate some of those assets, but it is de minimis. It is much more for taxes for the owner over the first couple of years of ownership. That's really all it is. But the point of deferral and Bobby Bonilla and Chris Davis and everybody else is all about you and how disciplined you are. Hi, David. I was, hi, hello. Quick question. I was just listening to your pod talking about workplace culture. I'm just beginning my career as a healthcare executive. I was wondering, did you have a personnel policy? You said personal though. Did you have a personal policy on attending work functions outside of the office? Some of my mentors say to not go to any, and some say to go and say hello and leave. I was wondering what your thoughts were as a former executive. Love nothing personal and your appearances on the Dan Lebitard show. Have a great day. Thank you. Great question. One of the things I'm most commonly asked by not just young people, but people actually in mid-career crisis, thinking of changing careers, what's the best way to meet people? People move to new cities. People move with a spouse who moves for a job and they've got to move and start again. What is the best way to start your career? What's the best way to get into sports? How do I meet people? Do you know the number of people who want to meet me? I don't. I just know the number of people who reach out and say, will you talk to me? Will you look at my resume? Should I do X, Y, or Z? What do you think of A, B, or C? I was incredibly encouraging as president of a baseball team for all of our employees to go to as many outside functions as possible. A work function is defined as a meeting, a conference, an event, a game, a dinner, a lunch, a coffee talk, anything that is outside the four corners of your office. Do you know what happens sitting in your office? Nothing. It is incredibly important for you to get out and meet people everywhere you can. You wanna to go to your kid's little league game? Go, meet the other parents. You wanna join your local chamber of commerce? Do it. Your business council. You wanna to go to sporting events and meet people around you. Be friendly, go to restaurants. You never know. Drop your business card in one of those jars for a get a free lunch here, get a free dinner here. You never know when people are going to need you, find you, want you, or care about what you do and what you are selling. The best margined business is the revenue you get with the least amount of R&D, with the least amount of expense needed to get that dollar of revenue. So what's the cost? Here's where you tell me, David, weren't you an economics major? Yeah. 
What about opportunity cost? What about the hour and a half that you spend driving to a half hour meeting? Well, some of that's been dealt with with Zoom, but I always found it okay to drive long distances or fly long distances for in-person meetings before the time of Zoom, before the time of COVID, because it is much easier to say no to somebody over the phone by letter than it is when they're looking right in your eye. It's much easier to start a relationship, a longer lasting relationship with someone who you've looked in the eye. Because the way you build your business is by providing a service that someone wants and needs. And when they want it and need it, they think of you. Because when someone wants or needs a service that they don't know where to get or how to get it, they go to a friend, they go to a coworker, or they go to their own Rolodex, their own contact list, their own memory, and they say, mm, I met somebody, I'm going to give them a try. So you're asking me whether or not you should go and just say hello and leave. What are you punching the clock? If your goal is just to tell your boss you've done something because it's in your job description, you are not going to advance, you are not going to succeed, and you are not going to be as rich as you want to be. The people who stay the longest and do the most and make the most connections and have the best ability to have interpersonal relationships, the best ability to navigate inter-office politics, the best ability to manage up and manage down, the best ability to communicate and articulate actual needs and wants and to ask for the business. Hi, I'm a printer. I would love your business. I'd love to print your sales flyers. We gave printing business to people who literally came up to me and said that. Hi, I'm in PR. You guys could use some PR. Everyone hates you. Hi, I do Spanish PR. You don't do anything in Spanish. How about it? Hi, I'm in marketing. You better market. Hi, I want to join your baseball team. Can you throw 96? No, 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 but I'm in analytics. All right, here's the problem. Solve it. It is critical to make connections, foment connections, nurture connections, find touch points. I'm a birthday guy. I'll text people on their birthdays just to say happy birthday, to stay in touch because no one wants to be the person who only gets a call from someone when someone needs something. You can navigate these shark infested waters. Dare to be different. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. David, who are the five most important people in Marlins history? I'm asking because Jeannie Buss was asked this question recently and got terrible heat for naming Kareem, Kobe, LeBron, Magic and Phil Jackson, 
leaving off Jerry West and or Elgin Baylor. I did want to get to this question, Coca. And the reason I wanted to get to this question is how do you know who the five most important Lakers are in history? It depends on who you ask, doesn't it? If there's there's people who've never heard of Jerry West, there's people who don't realize that Elgin Baylor was anything other than a general manager for the Los Angeles Clippers or that Jerry West was anything other than an executive for the Grizzlies. The fact is that those were two unbelievable Lakers. Is LeBron one of the five greatest all-time Lakers? He has one title with him. He's the second greatest player of all time, but does that mean he's an all-time Laker? James Worthy did more. Magic Johnson did more. He's on the list. Michael Cooper did more for the Lakers than LeBron's done so far. Now, LeBron could win another title, and if you get two or three titles, then we're starting to talk about something. But why did Jeannie Buss get that amount of heat? Someone asked her list. She gave her list. If you don't like her list, make your own list. Well, I've got a list for the five most important Marlins, and these are my reasons. Fifth most important Marlin in history is a tie between Jeffrey Loria and Derek Jeter. How can Jeffrey Loria and Derek Jeter be mentioned in the same sentence? Well, Jeffrey Loria saved baseball in Florida. Without Jeffrey Loria, baseball would have left Florida if he had not gotten a baseball, uh, baseball ballpark built. If he had not come in to buy the Marlins when John Henry wanted to get out and move to Boston or move anywhere, if Jeffrey Loria had not stepped up, people would not have gotten a World Series championship in 03. They would not have gotten Marlins Park. They would not have seen an all-star game. They would not have seen World Baseball Classics. They would not have had anything to call their own. The reason why it's tied with Derek Jeter is Derek Jeter's now in year four of a very important time in Marlins history where he's trying to build an organization, have sustained winning in an industry that when you're the Marlins, it's hard to be sustained unless you're smart. And he's trying to prove that he can be what Michael Jordan is not. So far, he has not really proven it. I mean, he made the playoffs expanded. But Derek Jeter has still found his way to be the fifth most important person tied with Jeffrey Loria in Florida Marlins franchise history. Number four, Jeff Conan. Mr. Marlin is the fourth most important person. He is the player who is associated with the Marlins more than any other player, more than Giancarlo Stanton, more than Christian Yelich, more than Charles Johnson, more than Jose Fernandez, more than Kevin Brown, more than Preston Wilson, more than anybody you can think of, more than LeVon Hernandez. Jeff Conine won titles with nine, in 97 and 03 with the Marlins, was a special assistant. He is known as Mr. Marlin. His is the first number that should be retired as a Marlin, and this is not personal at all. When you think of the Marlins, you think Jeff Conine. If not, you're not paying attention. Number three, third most important in Marlins history to me is Jimmy Leland. Jimmy Leland was a cigarette-smoking, gruff manager of a guy. He did manage in Colorado for a lot of years, but he's best known for me as being the manager of the 1997 World Championship Florida Marlins. That's a team that actually had Bobby Bonilla. That's a team where... They were built to win, and they did, and that's not easy. Beating the Indians in seven games on that base hit by Edgar Renteria scoring Craig Council. Jim Leland ended up leaving the Marlins, along with everybody, back in 98. But I'll tell you, the history of the Marlins would be different if not for Jim Leland. The number two most important person on the silver medal winner in Marlins history is the manager that Jeffrey Loria said, let's bring in. Have I narrowed it down enough for you? The manager who everyone said he's too old, can't win. What are you doing? You're out of your mind. In comes trader Jack McKeon. 
and puts his stamp on the franchise in a way that even Jim Leland didn't. Winning the World Series in 2003, managing again to a disappointing finish in 04 and 05, coming back for a little stupple of a management, I think it was 2011, before uh, Ozzie Guillen took over in 12. But when you think about Marlins legends, Jack McKeon is right there at the top of your list. Thank you, Trader Jack. Still going strong. You can still manage today. The number one most important person in Marlins history, everyone relax, it's David Sampson. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I'm not on the list. Not even close. Guess who you need to have if you want to have a baseball team? You don't need players. You don't need a stadium. You need an owner. Not really a popular thing to say because owners aren't very popular. And this owner has had his ups and downs in the history of South Florida. But Wayne Huizenga is the single most important person, not just for the Marlins, but for the Dolphins, for the Heat, for the Panthers. He is the single most important person in the history of South Florida sports, more so than even Joe Robbie. Wayne Huizenga wanted to bring baseball to Miami. He had a vision of what it would be like on the Dade Broward line. Wayne's world would be the great water park, a great amusement park. At the time he owned the Dolphins, Panthers. Wayne Huizenga worked with Bud Selig to get a franchise in Florida, and he got it. And that was way back in the early 90s. The Marlins first started in 93. The expansion was granted, and I don't know, Coco, was it 91? So it's already been 30 years. Wayne Huizenga is my number one most important person in Marlins history. Thanks for the question. And stop criticizing people's lists. If you don't like my movie list, that's okay. It's my movie list. If you don't like my book list, that's okay. It's my book list. If you don't like my Lakers list or my Marlins list, get your own damn list. What are your thoughts on the newly announced PGA bonus structure? PGA Tour bonus program has been announced. It's a $40 million pool split by 10 players. It's not evenly split. It's not based on PR or your score in a tournament. Someone explained this new bonus program and we're very confused by it. So I wanted to give you my thoughts and explain what it is. What the PGA has decided to do is fascinating to me. And it's all because of Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods gets more attention for not golfing than he does for anybody who golfs. I'm sorry, Dexter. Um, Sorry, Brian, Bryce, Dustin, Rory. T sorry to all of you. But at the end of the day, the reason why you all make the money you make and the purses are what they are in PGA is because of one man, Tiger Woods. The phenomenon that is Tiger Woods has led to an influx of revenue, an influx of corporate sponsorship, an influx of broadcast revenue, likes of which the PGA Tour never would have dreamt. So what they are now doing is they're finding a way to compete, the PGA is, with other such tournaments or other such events where they pay appearance fees to players. Because what happens if you're Tiger Woods and you decide you want to play in a tournament on a random May weekend and you just choose a tournament in Boise? Do you know how much money that tournament's now going to make? 
Do you know the attention that that tournament will now get? And do you know what Tiger Woods' guarantee is if he doesn't win or if he doesn't make the cut? It's not worth his time. Why would Tiger Woods agree to be in your tournament if he's not going to get paid? Why is it so strange for people to understand that golfers getting appearance fees makes perfect sense? And if the PGA wants to compete, you remember when there were these rumors of a, another tour that was going to start? And this tour was going to try to compete with the PGA Tour, and they were going to, oh, God, pay appearance fees to players where the PGA never does that? Guess what? PGA is realizing that we need to find a way to dare to be different. We're not going to pay appearance fees, but we're going to start a bonus program. Now, they're going to put the bonus program in some sort of machine. They're going to try to split up the money in however way they do. They're going to use curating, social media influence, and all sorts of ways that are very hard to monetize. They're very hard to calculate other than looking at the number of followers and figuring out how many bots there are, what the engagement is, who bought followers, who didn't, what their level of sports sponsorship is, whether or not individual player sponsors will attract sponsors of those companies, those companies to sponsor the tournament whether or not they can get an increase in any broadcast revenue because certain players are guaranteed to play in certain tournaments. The Masters doesn't need to pay appearance fees because everyone wants to play in the Masters, but people want to watch golf other weekends as well. I find it to be brilliant that the PGA Tour is doing it. And you're asking me my thoughts. My thoughts are perfect. How about this? Tiger Woods had his car accident, didn't play in the Masters, may not play in a tournament all year. Do you want a bonus mailbag Bonus episode, bonus wait to see where I tell you something's going to happen and I'll revisit it. Coco, we're going to do a bonus wait to see here, okay? Tiger Woods this year, the first year of the PGA bonus structure program, will get the largest allocation of the bonus program. And the reason why he will is even from his couch in California, he is the center of the golf universe, and everybody knows it. Thank you for your question. That can't be the end of the show, Coke. Is, is that 45 minutes already? But there's so many more questions. All right, I guess we'll do another one at the end of May. Keep coming with, there's too many, but keep them coming. Great questions, rate, review, download, follow. Keep supporting Nothing Personal. We're going to keep staying here with you. You have yourself a great weekend, and remember, it's just business. This is nothing personal. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com.